Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. TVP's announcements. This is a series that we have on our network where we give you announcements about upcoming projects and platforms that are entering the crypto ecosystem. Now, this is a disclaimer because we do that now. So, here's the thing. This is the presentation of a platform, and that's it. This is an investment advice. Don't take it as investment advice. If you like the platform, seek it out in the show notes. Go there, buy the things, invest in the platform. Help them out with your skill sets. But we're not giving you any recommendations or advice. This is just for you to listen to and soak up some new information about a new platform in this ecosystem. So, please enjoy. Hey, everybody. If you heard that specific music by the absurdist, then you know that it is time for another TBP announcement. And today, we'll jump right in. Today, uh, joining us is the Freight Network. We have John Fox, the chairman, and Sloan Brakeville, the CEO. And um, yeah, so let's just hop right into it. Guys, what we'd love to know is is you guys' origin story. Like, everyone is obsessed with origin stories nowadays. That's why Marvel universe is making a killing in the box office so we want to know what's you guys origin story like your professional background and how that all culminated to the point um where you got into crypto and now you built you're building a company in crypto um so give us give us the background uh super cool man thanks for having us on dimitri um we love the marvel series but we're much more gene roddenberry people so uh (laughs) Our origin story is, is mine's more Jim and, and Sloan's is more Spock. And uh, between his logic and, and my inability to not skip, start, you know, keep thinking about growth, we seem to make a pretty good team. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I've been in logistics for a long time. Uh, I, I took my first company public when I was 30, uh, focusing on domestic distribution of food, actually. And then I went into importing. So really, very much real-world businesses, but I'm 44, so um, I, I wasn't uh, – I totally missed it on that 1.0 until I started building sales and marketing software solutions and doing a little uh, um, bit in the SaaS sector. But I, I knew how to move freight, and I knew how to sell goods to move freight. And I did a lot of that globally for a long time and suffered the frustrations of that business for a really long time. Um Getting into blockchain kind of took me by surprise. Uh, I bought my first Bitcoin only a year and a half ago. And, you know, I hadn't stayed up till two in the morning uh, studying in a long time. 
and I couldn't put it down. Uh, and my wife would ask me to turn off the, uh, you know, the light in the bedroom, and I'd go to the living room and keep reading. And, and you know, trading was interesting. I kind of came into the market when everyone thought they were geniuses, and um, I, I was definitely one of those guys who just thought, man, did I buy at the right time. Um, but what quickly became a lot more interesting was the technology behind it, and started reading a great book called Ethereum and Solidity. Just started explaining it very simply to me. And I, I then read the Bancor white paper, and that's when I got really excited. Uh, and since then, I've been able to meet some of the authors of it and have much deeper conversations. But, you know, I came from an old world system of sales and, and shipping, and they were talking about barter and the very rare double coincidence of, of having something that someone wants when then and then having uh, uh, the desire for what you have and how barter works so well on a small scale of, you know, I have a chicken, you have a calf, let's make a dinner, um, or on a very large scale with a vibrant ecosystem. But how do we make that work in between? They started talking about trust uh, and liquidity and, and how we can provide that. And that was like a language I really understood. Uh, and I dove in the rabbit hole uh, and thought of Freight Network a couple months later and started writing a white paper and you know realized that I didn't have the technical chops to be in this business. Uh, so one of my partners uh, told me about a guy who would be like the perfect marriage for me and uh, that was Sloan. So I'll let you tell him a little bit. I'll let him tell you a little bit about himself. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, so my story begins kind of in late 2012. I had a old college roommate come up to me in a frantic frenzy and offer a partnership in a mining application. Um, the the company itself was founded in during the run up of, of the of the market at the end of the year. Then we got our miner finally arrived. Uh, I believe it was a Coin Terra. We had pulled pulled money from family resources and we're all excited and. Then in January, early February, it crashed hard, and the the numbers of our business looked very shaky. So we packed everything up and shuddered, but the interest in Bitcoin and blockchain did not fade there. I was an economics student, and so uh, in that final semester, I was required to write a thesis paper. And so I proposed a thesis paper on just Bitcoin to my professor, uh, but he suggested we go a little deeper and dive into how the application of blockchain technology, in particular the exciting project of Ethereum, could come in and make waves in the world of economics. So I wrote a paper on what I guess could be thought of as a stable coin, uh, as we know it now, and it was focused around how there can be a programmatic issuance and buyback of currencies based on something called a McCallum rule. And got that submitted, went about my life, joined IBM, and was working on a number of, of, of exciting projects before I landed finally in the blockchain labs, which I was one of the first hires there, got that whole thing kicked off in North America. Uh, the first project I was on was with Bank of America and HSBC. It was the first commercial engagement IBM ever had for a blockchain solution. And it was focused around trade finance and the letters of credit that uh, make the whole world go round, actually. So the timeline from there to how I met John was a hodgepodge of various industries, including finance and insurance, music industry, entertainment, 
but one that I was particularly interested would interested in was the supply chain industry. And the partner John was referring to, uh, Adam Helfgott and I, uh, met up one day and I was telling him about how I was a little disgruntled with how IBM was running their blockchain labs and how I was particularly interested in going out and starting a product of my own instead of being pulled into different directions. And he introduced me to John. Well, now, when I called Sloan and was like, uh, great meeting you, do a quicker job, come to a crypto startup. And he said yes. Like, I thought I had an amazing pitch. I had no idea he was kind of ready to like, do the next thing in life. Um, but uh, uh, apparently, I just learned that wasn't exactly the case. And then I'll say this just in terms of sort of about us. Like, like when I was in my 20s, I remember you know, learning about the Federal Reserve and it not being a federal institution and how uh, the income tax was, you know, marginally illegally ratified in Congress. And I was a revolutionary and I was at Sarah Lawrence College and I, you know, I played acoustic guitar and I wanted to change the world. And, you know, uh, and then I grew up and I never kind of forgot about that stuff. So when all this stuff started happening, I was like, oh, my God, are people like, 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 wow, they're doing it. Sloan was at that phase in his life where he hadn't, you know, drop that utopian thought. Um, and funny enough, today he's the guy who's like, John, stop looking too far into the future. Let's build something that people can like ship on in 2018. And he's like such a pragmatist, but he still had that idealism of like, let's change the world. This stuff's really crappy the way it's done. We're, we're, we've gone against our founding fathers and we're in a deep system of credit that enslaves people. And like, I'd forgotten all those thoughts. Uh, so he, you know, uh, uh, he had that vibrancy of, of a young man uh, with a bone to pick. Yeah, thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess it's kind of... Oh, there's a You guys hear that? Uh, uh, there we go. No, I'm not hearing it. Um, I guess it's kind of... Um, it's good and bad, right? Like, I guess the idealistic thoughts get you so much energy to move and energy to create. Um, but it always seems like, oh, we got to pull back from these idealistic views and see if we can build something that's pragmatic and maybe we'll get there. And I guess that, that brings us to the freight network. So, so what problem does did the freight network like isolate and, and how are you guys looking to solve that problem? Either way, you can take it. I can take it. We, uh, uh Jim or Spock. <laughs> I could talk about it from the point of view of, of our, our vision and how we've evolved. Um, Let's do that. Let's do that. We came into this knowing that the trucking industry was destructive in a lot of ways. Truckers are making $44,000 a year. They are severely overworked, treated as a commodity, and for them to get work was a matter of going through a series of middlemen who were each taking their own cuts of the potential margins there. And our initial thesis was to say, let's build a decentralized marketplace that empowers shippers and carriers to work together in a coordinated environment, have a, new, a number of smart contracts, be that integration between them, and completely eliminate that core functionality that some of those middlemen solved. Well, we came, just to sort of put color on that, like we came in saying, look, there's a big trucking market, there's a huge brokerage that kind of controls price discovery there. Let's go disintermediate the big brokers and let's Let's have normal market mechanics interoperate between buyers and sellers. 
And I think that was like the first thought of a lot of people, particularly in logistics, was like, let's build a marketplace. And you'd see all these websites from all these like ICO projects that were like middlemen, bad, transparency, good, token incentives. And, you know, the more we looked into it, we realized like, you know, we were wrong and, and they were wrong. And um, you want to, you know, we're dealing with a, a, like close to a $10 trillion industry of logistics. Logistics is like when supply chain is like what happens when all the things are being made. Logistics is what happens when they ship out of the factory until they get to the store. And um, there's so many parties interoperating in there. It's stunning. People have to go to a white paper because we won't bore you with it here, but like the 50 or 60 steps a package goes through while circling the globe and the 25 different information systems that paperwork gets recreated for, um, our vision totally changed to saying like, we don't want to disintermediate people that we're trying to help create efficiency. So our value prop became let's disintermediate waste within the companies that want to participate. And so we switched to building a protocol. We realized that if we were building application uh, level marketplaces, trade finance vehicles, and believe me, we were tempted to because every investor is asking us like, so tell us about your token velocity and how does your you know, uh, transaction value equal your network value? And we wanted to have good answers about that. So we talked about how truckers and shippers will communicate and then we'll stake tokens and they'll hold it up. And how do you get truckers to use freight token? And, like we have good ideas around that, as I think a lot of applications do. But when we finally figured it out, it was saying we want to be a protocol that lets everyone talk. And the reason people don't talk now is they want to keep data privacy. So when a peanut butter manufacturer ships something in India, we want Walmart to see what's shipped and where it's at the whole way through. And the reason that can't happen is there's a bunch of middle parties, Maersk and FedEx, and, and they don't want to share their data with each other. Uh, and so uh, a protocol can let you store private data publicly, right? And it takes all of the pipes you need to, to do all of these marketplaces and embeds them in a protocol. And so it becomes a safe place to write data and share data without sharing anything you don't want to share through cryptography. And we realized that like we could speak to the entire logistics sector and that became like a lot more interesting for us because it was something that people were saying they really needed at the enterprise level. So I guess well, my, this takes us naturally to the next question, and that is uh, which, what tech are you using to – which tech are you leveraging to allow for this situation where all these different companies can – I guess what it seems like they're doing is they're sharing data with not knowing that they're sharing data. They're keeping certain things private and the things that need to be public spark an event or something that continues that that doesn't slow down the supply chain. Uh, what what are you leveraging? Is it Ethereum? Is it Neo? I don't know. But what tech are you currently using? So functionally, we are blockchain agnostic. We've built our early prototypes on Ethereum. For a number of reasons, it being the, the largest developer community out there, the need for our token to interoperate with our core applications and protocol. Uh, but as we look at the core value prop of what the protocol brings to the table, it really doesn't matter what blockchain it's on. It's about what the blockchain provides as a sort of key value to the protocol and to the people who are going to be using it. Mm. And so just, you know, on that too, like, 
do we want to go to this fully decentralized vision? That's going to take a while, right? So a lot of the decisions we're making are about like, how do we get operational relatively quickly? And so that fully decentralized future like starts in steps, right? You're going to have some centralized data that's hashed on the uh, uh, blockchain and you can know that it's secure data without sharing it all. So like we've built some of this around partnerships. Our, uh, one partnership we have um, it was with a company called Openport and they're actually building the marketplace level stuff. And they're working with, you know, Procter and Gamble and Colgate and Nestle and, um, so we work with a company like that and say, okay, what do you need on the protocol layer for you guys to use our protocol? And we're interoperating with them now. And, and they're actually going to take our freight tokens and spend them uh, as micro incentives to drivers. So this was, you know, an application layer thing that came up with something really novel, like an electronic proof of delivery as opposed to having a paper one. And that became a, a much more trusted asset for banks. And they've lined all that up, right? So... Uh, we want to work with Nestle and Colgate and Procter and Gamble, and, and they sort of give us the bridge to be able to do that. So we focus the early uh, build on our protocol around giving them operability. Uh, and I think you, you know, if you want to be operating at any time in the near future and actually be kind of the unicorn that actually has a tokenized system that uses tokens and circulates them, um, you know, you, you have to be idealistic on the big vision, but be willing to build the early modules. Interesting. So. So let's talk about some of those incentives to the holders of the freight token and and why they would want to hold it and why not just hold it, but why they want to use it. What 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 utility does it have? How does it operate? So there's a couple of areas we've seen the token be applied already um, at the protocol level. It's required to write data into our platform. And so anytime that you're posting information about GPS coordinates or associating that electronic proof of delivery document to the protocol itself is going to require a fee. It's a similar model to how Ethereum, when writing data to the blockchain um, or consuming the the resources through smart contracts requires a, a token to flow through it. But we've seen ancillary uses, just like John mentioned, at the application level too. So the open port model, whereby they're incentivizing drivers to engage in a new way of doing business through electronic proof of delivery as opposed to paper-driven, is uh, another application of the token itself. Right, but on that, so but what are they going to do with it? It has to be a spendable token. So, you know, most of the interesting stuff is going to happen at the application layer. I don't think protocols have the most unique uses of token. Um, you know, you, 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 there's a fee to write data. And like, let's say you're a sensor company and you want to charge, you know, Burger King uh, a freight token every time they want to ping off the sensor. And um, you can use our protocol as, as, as a means of doing that sales and remittance process, um, but we'll participate only in the fraction of that that's required to actually write data to the blockchain. So the application layer is much more interesting. To swing back to OpenPort, what they've done I think it's super cool. Uh, they are giving drivers smartphones um, and basically loaning it to them. And then they're paying them with a micro incentive every time that they upload an electronic proof of delivery as opposed to the paper ones that kind of get lost in the shuffle. And those micro payments go towards them buying the phone so they can eventually own it. And when we're talking about doing this, you know, in countries like the Philippines, uh, it's really a game-changing kind of technology in these third-world countries where they've started to make some of their first big deals. 
That is a very interesting use case that I haven't heard in all my time. So they're incentivizing people to use, like, to keep electronic records, uh, and then they get a phone at the end of the deal. And it's all being done with freight token. And their system operates now. Our implementation with them will be running soon. And then, you know, a freight token will actually be in circulation in this format, probably as our first use case on an application level. Well, firstly, congratulations to that. Um, having a use case and, and having uh, your your platform being used in the wild, I know that was probably a big milestone for you guys. So uh, Yeah, we think it's a game changer. You know, I mean, you, you sit in these offices working really hard, and then you have that aha moment of like, oh, my gosh, this is actually going to be like in truck drivers' hands soon. Like, it, you know, the first shot at doing that, we thought we had it figured out, and we didn't. And then iterating and iterating and iterating, you're like, yeah, it's cool. It really tells the story of how a protocol becomes valuable. Because in and of itself, it requires adoption at the application level to realize its true potential. And seeing it used in this way that is really game-changing helps tell that story. You know, one thing we talk about a lot here is, like, we're designing new economies. And I don't know about Sloan, but I, I'm not an economist. Um, and... You know, it's a big job, and there's a learning curve. So, like, iterating in a field where thousands of other people are iterating and knowing that kind of nobody knows nothing and, and there's people that seem to be pulling ahead with really good ideas and understanding that, like, hey, if we really work hard and, and keep an open mind to being wrong a lot, like, maybe we could play a part in that. Uh, yeah, the moments when you see that that might be a reality, it's pretty cool for sure. So... Here's a question that I don't think I've ever asked this question on announcements, but um, it feels right right now. And that is, um, who are your competitors and why are you doing it better? Well, I mean, we competitors is a, is a funny word in this space because not in the blockchain space, but in the logistics space, because there's so many people doing so many different things, right? And Openport was thinking about doing an ICO, and now they're not doing one right now. Uh, and when we were a marketplace, they would have been a competitor, but now we're working together. You look at X and Chain, they're building a blockchain that we could eventually interoperate with. Um, you know, there's some early guys that did stuff like ShipChain that we're not, uh, uh, we're not really sure exactly what they're doing. There's an interesting company uh, that's building a giant liquidity pro protocol called SweetBridge. Um, but, but no one like actually threatens what we're doing directly, uh, which is, is surprising because I think it's sort of the most obvious play in logistics, but frankly, it wasn't obvious to us. It took us a little while to iterate to it. Um, so, and even if there's someone else who's going to go build a protocol, there's really just two questions of, um, how well can you interoperate with, you know, cross chain and cross platform? And how quickly can you work towards adoption? Um, and so, you know, we put ourselves in a position, not to like skirt the question, but it's really our answer is, is well, we're not in competition. If, there, if there's capabilities that we can add to an application uh, a layer development, like it only helps grow the network that they can participate with through the freight protocol uh, and vice versa. Hmm. When we were building a marketplace, we had a lot of competition, um, but as a protocol, uh, we only sort of enable the other players in the space. I think that's going to be a recurring story, story um, and emboldened in this entire industry. The, the longer we go forward is that the protocols are 
are, are what are going to have the power. I guess so. The protocols need applications, you know. And look, it's it's uh, Thursday today. We should, we should probably check the web tomorrow and see six new ICOs that might be direct competitors, right? Yeah, definitely. Six is is definitely lowballing it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's lowballing it. I think it will be for some time as uh, people get a grip on this tech. Um, so, also, I'd like to commend you for your foresight of being agnostic. Um, it takes a, a certain level head to maintain that position, and especially with the you know all the rigmarole that goes on. Um, but I think it's 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 um. I don't want to say gleefully, but it's accepting that like we don't necessarily know what is going to be the staple yet. So you have to be agile enough to adapt. Yeah, and the cool thing is coming from IBM, I recognized blockchain as a core technology to provide functionality to business applications. And so I had that mindset coming in, and the decisions we made on which platforms to operate on first, uh, it was a pretty easy decision simply because we saw the amount of community support that Ethereum had. Um, also, I think one thing that we can agree on is um, that, you know, what percentage of the companies launching today do you think will exist in eight years? You want to put a number on that, Dimitri? Uh, I'd say less than 5%. Okay, you and me are, and I, and I think both your listeners would probably agree too. So, you know, uh, Internet 1.0, tons of companies came out most crash and burn, but from those guys' iterations, like a lot was learned and a lot of good stuff was built on it. And I think we have a pretty robust internet now. And um, so, you know, will we be one of the guys who iterate and upon our ashes, like someone has a better idea or, you know, will we actually be relevant and, and build enough of economy an economy around our idea um, that we stick around? So we're like really aware of that. And, you know, having the ability to to pivot and iterate long term, I think it's going to be like a really big part of that because uh, we don't know what problems we don't know about yet. And I think that's like the biggest understatement of this uh, interview so far. Very. I, I'd have to agree. I'd definitely have to agree. So I, I guess what we should do is uh, switch the tone a little bit and talk about your ICO um, and talk about how it's structured and how people can get involved. Let's go ahead and get all those descriptives out in the air. Are we allowed to do that? <laughs> you can. Why not? You can do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lordy. Well, first of all, uh, we're full RAG-ass RAG-D compliant. Um, and so while we're doing the utility offering, we're in full compliance with the idea that we might be considered as a security one day. Although we were super happy about the Ethereum ruling, and, and we definitely agree with where that all came down. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, right now we're doing an institutional round, um, and then we'll move into a, a, a pretty traditional uh, pre-sale, and then into a public ICO. Uh, we're thinking that the dates on that will be, uh, you know, late August or September, and we'll be announcing all of that soon. Um, you know, there's there's sort of a certain way we've decided to raise money. Some of us are older and, uh, you know, have some institutional finance background and we've been, you know, uh, pretty good about so far bringing on sort of long-term partners and strategic partners. Um, and the crowd is really interested. Like it's been really flattering to see that, that, you know, our telegram kind of blew up quickly and our whitelist is like massively oversubscribed. And, and so we're trying to move through it all quickly because, you know, we, 
like appreciate that there's an audience there that thinks we're interesting and, and this is a crowd based thing. Um, and we need to like really respect the crowd. So while we move through, you know, bringing on institutional support, like we're really working on keeping the crowd up to date and we have a good marketing team that's kind of letting everyone know where we're at because um, the crowd is where it's at and that's going to be the long-term supporters of your project. But you also just don't want to be one of these kind of fizzles out in the first year type deals. Um, so that's kind of the broad strokes of our ICO. We're doing something pretty traditional. Uh, we're, we're um, you know, relatively low cap. Uh, you know, we don't want to be uh, um, in the top 100 uh, uh, tokens out there while you're just growing a network. And um, we want to have a lot of opportunity to see our network grow. That's uh, you guys sound like your your leadership team there. You guys, and speaking to you specifically, is a lot of wisdom uh, in the things that you guys say, uh, especially given the wake of what happened last year and um, just the general sentiment that sometimes in this industry people uh, they want to move so fast like fast to the for fast for the sake of fast and sometimes it takes a long time for a good thing to grow so well if you yeah man, if you look at the really good ones out there that have sustained um we're, we're kind of following their model you know there actually is like pretty good data in the market about what worked and what kind of kept some no no one has long-term viability but some you know medium-term viability so you know just Trying to look at everything we've seen as kind of business school and replicate the good ideas, and uh, you know, and probably the best lesson is I'm sure we've all lost our ass investing in some ICOs that just you know uh, turkeyed pretty quickly, and uh, uh, you know, trying to understand the mechanics of how people kind of screwed it up so bad and, and not be that guy. It's very good, very uh, sage, sage like speak. Thank you for that. Uh, you're, you're very gracious. <laughs> um. What would you guys say to some of the naysayers that are, are getting really outspoken um, nowadays about there being no need uh, for private networks or um, you, like everything should be all the way open, all the way decentralized? Um, there's no need for private blockchains. Uh, what would be your, I guess, rebuttal to some of that? I think there's a difference between fully public and then having control of your data. Mm-hmm. And I think the some of the teams that we've seen focusing around privacy protocols and the ideas of having, like John mentioned earlier, the, the public data in a private context, there's a lot of really cool ideas coming out. I think the, the notion of, of these ZK snarks and bulletproof and all these privacy protocols that are coming in, that they can be applied to blockchains such that you can trust the data that you're sharing is only going to be shared with the people who need to see it. There's there's a lot to those ideas. Uh, fully private blockchains will exist for a very short amount of time. It's, there's really no difference between a private blockchain and a centralized database except for the log level ability to, to track transactions. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of wisdom of the crowd there. They may be a little early in their interpretation. I think we'll see private blockchains for a long time same way we see private intranets, but the true value is going to be held more likely in the in the public domain. But yeah, also, man, think of it this way. Like, if you've got to aim a bullet, right, and, and you're shooting, you know, 50 feet out, you have a decent chance of hitting the target, 
And, you know, if you're shooting, you know, 2,000 feet out, the, the odds are, you know, 99% are going to miss it. And so with, you know, processing speeds where they are now, uh, uh, the utopian uh, conversations about fully decentralized public uh, blockchains are like great, but I think we're going to have to like get a little closer to the technical realities of those happening before uh, uh, we can sort of, you know, uh, uh, point to the bleachers before the pitchers throw. Good deal. So I guess we'll wrap this up. Um, I, I like to ask two questions. One is for our audience, one is for us. The, the first one for the audience is uh, we have a lot of developers that listen and, um, you know, they like to help out on different projects or, or work for different people. I, I don't really know the life of a developer, but I do know they're in our community. Uh, we hear from all time. So if, if they wanted to reach out to your project, how do they do that? Is it Telegram? Is it Slack? Is it Rocket Chat? How do they how do they get involved? Yep. So the easiest way to get in touch with us is to follow our Telegram. Um, and then send a message to one of the admins. We're all in very close quarters, and any developer who wants to participate will be a welcome change from all the bounty hunters who are trying to offer their services uh, through our Telegram. Yeah, t.me forward slash fr8network. There we go. Team.me forward slash fr8network. Um, and the last question is, is there anything that you feel I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Jeez, oh. I wasn't prepared for that, man. Yeah, wow. Saving the curve for the end. <laughs> um, hmm, interesting. Uh, I always think an interesting thought is, like, where are we at in this technology? Um, where are we at in the market capitalization? Um, you know, because it's like saying I got, I, I, mean, I got into the internet in, like, you know, early 90s. Like, what does that mean, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you, I mean, where do you think we are in this whole thing? I mean, how long until you think we can have a concrete conversation about what works, what doesn't work, what system is better, you know, where most of the blockchains have failed, but there's there's a couple that we're really building on. Like, how long does this thing take to shake out in your mind? Uh, in my mind, I think this thing is probably going to take at least another decade to shake out just because the Internet is still taking time to shake out. And it all kind of depends on the demand coming from the people that are disinterested in how the thing actually works. And I think that is what kind of makes it tough is that like everyone uses all of these things on the Internet all day, every day, but maybe less than I bet you uh, one out of 10 people even remotely knows the, archi the architecture of the Internet or the infrastructure of the Internet. And so when you've got such few people that actually do care about you know how it works it just takes a long time and when all those few people are spread across the globe uh, working together gets tough and things grow slow but things do grow and it yeah, all depends I agree, on doing it. Yeah, I agree with you implicitly you know if you look at it from like the logistics point of view uh, 80 percent of logistics is still using something called edi standards right electronic data interface and it was invented in the 80s as a way for logistics companies to talk to each other digitally. And still there's companies like taking big steps forward by complying with that 80s architecture. So like a big part of our job is to actually interface EDI from the 80s uh, into our protocol to let people take that next big step. But I, I would agree with you. I think it's 10, 15 years before it really starts making strong sense. It, um, 
Yeah, it's definitely going to take a while. I mean, we're still dealing with scaling um, yeah. and how that's going to look and, you know, what's going to quote-unquote win. It's probably going to be a basket of either protocols, uh, probably protocols, basket of protocols that win that scaling debate. Um, nobody's talking about interoperability very loudly, which I love, which means the people that are working on it are working hard. <laughs> Because maybe we could get some good solutions there. Um, yeah, Aon is one to look at too. We like them, and, and we're talking about uh, you know uh, uh, being compliant with them in addition to others. But uh, yeah, there's a few. I think the guys that are having those conversations, you know, Matthew Spoke over there is super interesting. Yep. But uh, anyway, man, we're a really big fan of your show. It's uh, it, it was great for you to ask us on. So thank you very much. Thanks for coming on and. Um, yeah, I think that's all we got. Sloan, did you wanna you wanna take a shot at that question? It's a curveball. No, man, I'm I'm a big believer in near term implementation with the long term vision. I think the blockchain agnostic approach, as you heard me describe earlier, is, is kind of important right now as we keep the purpose of our protocol at the forefront and the implementation of the protocol as a a key thing that depends on the readiness of technology to accept it. So a timeline for that answer. I'm thinking a little bit more nearsighted. I think myopic in that I'm I'm at five years until things are, are really moving in a in a really positive direction. Well, from the guy who's building it to your ears, right? Five years. That's that that coincides with our our co-host Corey Petty. Uh, he's also a blockchain developer, and he thinks it's right around five years. So, well, if the engineers agree, then you and me are wrong, Dimitri. Yeah, engineers agree on a lot of stuff. Well, <laughs> I, I worked with some engineers in my past. <laughs> no, that's not a that's not a jab, Sloan. That's not a jab. But thank you guys for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and um, I definitely wish you the best of luck. It sounds like things are going very great. Um, I think it's very interesting the use case that you have um, that that paying for the cell phone. Um, by incentivizing them to keep electronic records. I think that is very, uh, very unique. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming by. It's the endorsements, man. It's awesome. Take care, Dimitri.